Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Dynamic Television's Daniel March about how the drops of Godmakers finding its way through continued industry turbulence. Wild Sheep Content's Eric Barmack on the changing streamer landscape, showrunner Melanie Hulsell on My Life with the Walter Boys' journey from Wattpad to Netflix, and 72 Films' John Douglas on bringing James Bond to TV with 007 Road to a Million. Daniel March is founder and managing partner of Dynamic Television, the Los Angeles-based producer-distributor behind series including Apple TV Plus's Drops of God, Netflix's Ginny and Georgia and Harry Wilde for Acorn TV. The company, which recently celebrated its 10th anniversary, started out in distribution, but made the move into production as the industry shifted, with streamers moving their investment away from content acquisition to original series. But with Wall Street upping focus on such businesses' profitability in recent years and a consequent squeeze in budgets, the industry to a degree is coming full circle, according to March, who spoke to me about how Dynamic has navigated these changes. I'm Dan March, I'm managing partner of Dynamic Television. Uh, Dynamic Television is a production and distribution company. Uh, we produce and distribute content, co-produce content all over the world. We produce shows from about 10, 12 countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, the US, Canada, Australia. And um, we've been um, in business for 10 years. We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary. 2023 was, a, was an, a challenging year, but an exciting year for us. We saw the premiere of Drops of God on Apple Plus, which was a remarkable show, one of the most talked about and well-reviewed shows of the year. We're very happy to see the continued success of Harry Wilde on Acorn, Ginny and Georgia in the US, Summer Law Murders, and a number of other shows that we helped uh, either develop or, or get into production. Tell us about Drops of God and why that was a show that you're particularly proud of. Uh, Drops of God, my, you know, my joke about Drops of God is we called it that because it took a miracle to get made. Uh, it was about four or five years of development. Um, a very ambitious show led by my partner Klaus, who's a brilliant producer and did an unbelievable job um, bringing, putting, you know, making Drops of God, bringing it to the screen. Um, France Television, extraordinary partner. Hulu Japan, extraordinary partner. Legendary came in with a very substantial investment against the distribution rights. Um, I think what's special and magical about that show is the way it really explores identity built in this competition structure, um, the identity of our characters trying to figure out um, you know, their, their individual stories and trajectories in life. Uh, it, there's a hopefulness to it. Um, and, but yet, at the same time, we never expected it to reach the critical acclaim or to reach the audience that it did. And so that's the, those are the highlights, you know, why, you, why you're in this business. You know, they don't come very often, but it's a credit to all the filmmakers. It's a credit to Klaus. They delivered a show that just touched a nerve. If it was the right show at the right time, it's something we're really proud of. Obviously, over that 10-year period, you've seen the business change tremendously. Uh, how would you kind of characterize, I guess, the the boom that we've seen in, in the scripted space and right. then particularly over the last year, a, a contraction right. as well. Uh, you know, it's funny when you start a company, you have a plan. And then it's just a matter of how long you're going to hold on to that plan before you put it up in a nice little ball and you throw it in the bin. And that's a little bit of the way the, the TV business has unfolded over the last few years. When we started the business, uh, distribution was very buoyant. And the demand for content, we really saw that taking off. Right? Obviously, you had a lot of growth whether it was streamers, whether it was digital channels. We saw a lot of linear channels still launching on the back of cable in Europe. And it was a pretty exciting time. I don't want to say it was easy, it certainly felt easier looking back on it you know, than, we, than, than the business we're in today. Um, when streaming became a global business, that was a very big paradigm shift because a lot of that investment moved away from content acquisition to content production. And that really started, I would say, late 2017, early 2018. We felt that impact and we felt those challenges immediately. And I guess the, the, the positive of that and looking back on it is that it forced us to become a production company. And so instead of developing shows that uh, we were either outsourcing or working with third parties, uh, we were developing shows that we'd make ourselves. And, you know, Harry Wilde and Drops of God were the first two shows that we produced internally. Um, now, ironically, we're seeing a little bit of a shift back into this co-production model after five years of 
very substantial investments, right, into this global uh, subscription paywalls. I'm now pulling back from that a little bit, leaning more towards a co-production market again. It's actually kind of leaning back into what we do. So we're, even though it's been a tough period of time and we're in this correction, we're kind of optimistic about the future because we like the idea of going back to a co-production, shared risk, shared upside model. So it is almost like it's kind of come full circle in some ways. You know, we've, we've seen, as you referenced, the, the US streamers, the US studios, you know, going through a period of withholding rights to their programming. They've re-entered the, the licensing business and at the same time, the, the, the standalone streamers, the Netflixes and Amazons are, are becoming a bit more relaxed about rights and we're even seeing them starting to sell on their, their homegrown originals. So it's, it's uh, yeah, full circle, I guess. Yeah, well, it's full circle and it's also a reflection of an industry that's gone through rapid growth that's now shifting to being a more of a mature business, right? And so I think that's kind of what we saw in 22. A lot of these streamers were valued on a growth business. Uh, we didn't really quite know where the cap was, how many subscribers would each business be able to achieve globally. And then I think as Wall Street got concerned and said, okay, well that number might be a lot lower than we expected, it's obviously forced these companies to prove that they can run these businesses profitably at the levels they're currently at or will be at in the near future. So obviously a lot of that spend on content was being spent on a growth model, right? Once the companies achieved, you know, kind of forced to get into more of a profitability mode, we've seen that obviously result in a pullback on spend. We're in this correction, but as a result of that, and as these companies move into more of a, of a profit, sustainable profitability business, it's natural that they can't continue to make those same types of investments they were making in terms of trying to grow their business. Um, that, I think, ultimately does move things back into more of a shared risk, shared uh, you know, co-production business. So that's part of it as well as a really reflection of where the streaming market is. Now, we've got other challenges in the business, right? The ad markets, the kind of crash of the ad market in, in 2023 was, was, a, was a challenge as well. You obviously had the strikes in the U.S. That was a big challenge. Um, you know, I'm optimistic in, in 2024. I think it's going to be a challenging year for selling finished content in the near future just because I think a lot of companies are still in that holding pattern chasing profitability. But um, I do think we're going to start seeing a little bit more investment towards the end of Q1, beginning of Q2 as companies start allocating some of their 2025 budgets. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the ad market picks back up. You know, it's an election year. It's Olympics, you know, will it get back to historical levels or even just the levels of the past couple of years? A little bit un, unclear, but I, you have to think it's going to be an uptick over 2023, at least I, I certainly hope so. Quite how big was the impact of the strikes, you know, as, as far as your own business was concerned? You know, what, to what extent did it affect the stuff that you were working on? And, you know, uh, as you say, that was kind of happening in the midst of an industry that was already in a contraction mode anyway. So, I mean, it was a pretty severe kind of dent. You know, listen, you know, when you go into a strike, when you go into any type of work stoppage, we have no clue of how long that's going to sustain or what the consequences are or how the market's going to respond. Um, so we thought going into the strike, well, you know, nobody wants a strike, first of all, right? But you're in a strike. And so you hope that, well, maybe there'll be some opportunities for independent content uh, or maybe some, some buyers will have some gaps that they, uh, you know, we can help them fill. Uh, what we saw instead was really a shutdown of spending right across the board. Um, it's almost as if major media companies just put a hold on, on all expenditures, any unnecessary expenditure. And so that was tough. You know, if you think about COVID, you know, which is 2020, and we lost half a year on COVID. We lost half a year in 2023. Over the last four years, one year was basically lost uh, in terms of uh, just more or less not being able to really function as a company, but having to carry all that overhead. So that's a challenge, you know. Um, again, I, I think at the end of the day, it's a correction. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad the writers got what they wanted. I'm glad the actors got what they wanted. And I'm optimistic about the future, but certainly 2023 was a challenge. 
Okay, so let's talk about 24 and, uh, you know, talk about some of the shows that you've got coming up. And you've talked about, you know, optimism for a, a slightly brighter, you know, few years moving forward. Well, I'm optimistic. I mean, we have three shows that we expected to be greenlit in 2023, and they're all been greenlit for, or, or pushed into 2024. Um, and none of those were creative uh, issues. They were clearly getting financing budget out of, out of our partners. So, um, for, for understandable reasons. But I'm optimistic, again, as you get into 2025 budgets, you know, we're in the business of delivering content to audiences. Um, we have to understand that there's a correction. We have to understand that economics have to reset. Uh, we have too much content in the marketplace. That's put a negative pressure on prices and values. Um, I talk a lot about values because I'm in the business of selling content. And we've seen a lot of negative pressure on values uh, over the last couple of years. Um, why does that happen? Well, you have a degradation of linear viewing. You have a collapsing of windows. You have too much supply in the marketplace. So I do think going through this correction helps you get to a more efficient business, helps absorb some of that supply. Whether values or not increase, hard to say. You know, we certainly hope so. Um, but I'm optimistic, again, because we're in a business where tens of billions of dollars are continued to be invested in content. It's a very substantial market. And I think it's, you know, we're at the end of a difficult period, and we're going to see that investment pick up again. And obviously, I'm hopeful that you know, our shows, the ones that we've been working on, even though they might have been delayed a little bit, you know, we're going to get those into production in the relatively near future. Eric Barmack set up independent production and packaging company Wild Sheep Content in 2019 after eight years at Netflix, latterly as vice president and head of international originals. The Los Angeles-based outfit already has over 25 projects either made or in development, with titles including Miller and the Multiverse for Disney Plus Brazil, Hunting Ava Bravo for Roku and Amazon, and Chromosoma 21 for Chili's Canal 13 and Netflix. Wild Sheep, which has backing from Spain's Media Pro, has also set up a Latin American investment fund, and at the same time, Barmac has established a website dedicated to tracking the impact of artificial intelligence on Hollywood. He spoke with Nico Franks about these activities and how the streamer landscape is changing. Now we're in 2024, what are some of the priorities for Wild Sheep content and some of the programming um, on the slate this year? So in 2024, we're moving on a whole slate of co-productions on the, on the television side. So we have co-productions going in France, Ireland, uh, Iceland that we're all expecting to shoot. So a fairly significant expansion into Europe and with, uh, with multiple uh, linear uh, partners. Um, in Latin America, we, we've already made quite a bit of progress on the TV side. And, and we're really focusing on advancing our film slate. And we're doing it a number of different ways. We'll have several theatrical films completed in Mexico, as well as uh, a fund uh, that we, we're continuing to expand on that will be an equity fund where we'll make direct investments into small films. And tell me a bit about some of those co-productions and why you're focusing the co-productions in Europe. So we're focusing our co-productions on Europe because we, we see opportunities to help stimulate um, uh, shows, in, especially in smaller markets. So in Ireland, for example, we're working on a show that is with RTE. It's a, it's a comedy, and uh, we're bringing in uh, at least one other broadcaster from Europe. A uh, similar story in Iceland where we see uh, there's, a, there's a commissioner already on board and we've found opportunities through both of our, our investment and our connections uh, to get that show made with other broadcasters in Europe. Um, a lot of them that we, where we see the opportunity is sort of in more sophisticated crime shows. So things like Breaking Bad uh, feel ripe for development in Europe. Uh, we're also working with big authors uh, like Camila Lackberg, who's uh, successful uh, in best-selling in, in several markets in Europe. As a U.S. player, what's the kind of relationship there? Because I suppose a lot of these European companies, when they're working with a U.S. company, it's either a studio or a big streamer. Yeah. 
So what's, how are you positioning yourself as a, in, the, in that sense as a U.S. player? Well, uh, we have, so we're positioning ourselves in that market uh, by being small and nimble, um, but having access to capital and having access to relationships and hopefully having taste as well. So we think we're good at, at helping to package and pitch. Uh, we think that we're good at connecting the dots around the world for who might be interested in different types of programming. And at times we can also put money in to close a gap in financing, um, uh, but we're not doing it on, on onerous terms and we don't need to own projects outright. So we're doing it um, in sort of a boutique uh, hybrid uh, model where we have lots of different ways where, where we think we can help. Um, and, and the market seems to be agreeing that there's a need uh, for uh, uh, help us sell with this particular territory, and we need two hundred thousand dollars. Like it's, it, and it's amazing the number of shows that are held up over relatively small amounts of money, um, because either you need to go into a, a bigger studio and the process to uh, get approvals for that type of. Financing within a studio can be onerous, um, or um, the studios don't want to take risks, or uh, so they're so so good projects are left wanting uh, to for for lack of small funds. And what are some of the things you think need to change to stimulate more Latin American co-productions in the same way that Europe has that kind of co-production model? Yeah, I mean, Europe has commercial broadcasters and public broadcasters who uh, are comfortable uh, working with each other and have have uh, established ways of windowing. Um, I don't know if that's going to exist in Latin America, at least not in the foreseeable future. Um, and so the the alternative is uh, um, uh, small amounts of investment coming in. Um, almost like kind of like an angel investing model, um, knowing that not every project will uh, recoup 100% all of the time, but that overall there's a need for, for increased Spanish language programming and that good television shows, such as the one that we did with Canal 13 in Chile, uh, Chromosoma 21, uh, that, that when the shows come out the right way that there's going to be markets to sell it when the, when the series is done. And you were a streamer during the heyday of, of uh, the kind of streaming revolution. We keep hearing anecdotally that streamers are now more risk averse. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, is that a shame for the viewer and the, the producer? So I, I don't necessarily agree that streamers are more risk averse. That the, the the profile of what streamers want is changing quite significantly. Um, if you're looking at the overall landscape outside of the United States, uh, I would say it's, the market is still growing on a macro level. It's a little bit hard to tell year over year. There was a funkiness towards the end of last year, for example, um, where perhaps buyers were becoming uh, more conservative. But if you look at a trend line over three or five or 10 years, there's a dramatic expansion in international programming, largely driven by the streamers. And not just the streamers that we think about with uh, like Netflix and Amazon, but also the development of AVOD streamers like Roku and, and others in market. Um, what I do see happening is this kind of conflation between what was linear programming and what the streamers are seeking. So it used to be the case that, uh, for lack of a better phrase, that the streamers were heading towards more prestige programming and kind of countering what was happening in a healthy uh, linear market, which was more traditional. Um, now what you see is the streamers perhaps wanting to have programming that's a bit broader and the linear networks wanting things that are a bit 
uh, edgier at times. And so there's, there's a sort of a, a mix of things across all the different types of buying, uh, which is sort of heading towards a middle between prestige and, and more mass programming. Mm-hmm. And do you think the trend over the next few years is going to follow what we've seen previously in that there's one or two shows that break out in non-English language? So Casa del Papel, um, Squid Game, you know, one, a handful of shows. Or do you feel like there's a, there is going to be a kind of turning point and a, and a kind of, you know, that thing when Squid Game happened, when we thought, okay, this is it, but that hasn't quite kind of surfaced. So, so I challenge the notion that uh, there's only one or two international shows breaking out. And of course, it depends what your definition of breaking out is. Um, we did a show for Amazon last year, which was a, a docu-series on the, on the hip-hop artist A.P. Dillon, who's, who's tremendous and in, in big in India. That show, according to a, a survey that, that was sent to me that was publicly available information, had seven and a half million viewers on, on a doc series alone. If you were to look at the number of shows in Spanish language that were five million plus viewers across the streamers and plus VIX plus others, I, it's, it's probably has to be a hundred plus shows, right? And yet uh, a five million plus audience uh, on a cable network would be would be the, the number one show in its time slot for that week. Um, and so uh, the, the expectation when, when you're talking about a Squid Game or a Casa de Papel is you're talking about this global phenomenon. Uh, the reality is that if you were to lo- line up, I don't know, the thousand most popular shows um, uh, across the entire globe on a yearly basis, that the vast majority of them are now non-English. Um, and it's hard to see because there's the, the couple of examples that you've mentioned that people talk about each year. But what you're really seeing is if you have a, a thousand shows that the, the, uh, chemi- the, the makeup of the, the bottom 900 shows is dramatically changing in favor of international programming, and that those shows would be huge if you compared them to cable audiences in the States. Interesting. Um, What does the rise of AI mean for the film and TV business, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we have a site uh, that is devoted to this, AI in Hollywood, and uh, we're spending a lot of time playing with with that question, what what does AI mean for the the industry? I think short term, what it means is that a whole lot of jobs are changing fairly significantly. Um, so I would be nervous if if I were starting my career now in trying to get a job in script coverage, uh, because it, we've we've tested, we've put in a whole bunch of pitches, hundreds of pitches into various AI mechanisms, and the coverage is is uh, as good or better. Um, and so like the ability to synthesize information around core descriptions of shows, as an example, has already changed dramatically. Um, what hasn't changed yet is the, the script writing, the creative, the taste thing. So if, if you were to use, take your pick of AI mechanisms, ChatGPT or whatever, and you were to ask it, to, to write a script based on these criteria, you still wouldn't get anything close to something that is artistically satisfying, at least from my perspective. So um, I, I suppose the takeaway is to be more and less nervous at the same time. The, the industry is already disrupted. There's certain things, uh, I don't know, movie reviews, script coverage, et cetera, that I think are going to be harder and harder to do in isolation without AI. And the the AI coming into it is going to change the fundamental nature of the way people work. But I don't know if the creative process is going to change dramatically um, 
in terms of deciding what makes good or bad content and deciding how to tell a good story and put that story on screen. Mm-hmm. And do you think ultimately it will lead to TV or you know media content that is more formulaic or less formulaic? I think it's going to be, uh, my contrarian views, it's going to be less formulaic because really um, when you think about any new technology that's come in and impacted um, big media, um, it's usually pushed things on the edge. So take YouTube, for example. Uh, uh, the fact that it was so easy to post to audiences around the world could have led you to the conclusion that everybody will be publishing the same thing, and so people are all going to be watching the same thing. But just the sheer numbers of, of uh, content creators on YouTube uh, has dramatically expanded our, our creative lexicon. You just have more ways to experiment. I think AI will be similar in that way. There'll be millions and millions and then billions and billions of failures uh, that will be arrived at relatively quickly, faster. Um, but the outliers will be pushed harder because there'll be less cost to try something. So I think that long-term will lead to more satisfying uh, creative experiences. And finally, you mentioned earlier about um, films and theatrical released films. How optimistic are you about the future of cinema and what do you think cinemas need to do to bring more audience audiences in? Um, well, I, so I'm largely optimistic that the theater-going experience is, is still pretty unique and that when it works, it works on a huge level. And you can point to the, to the Barbie Oppenheimer weekends where um, uh, you felt like you had to be in a theater seeing one or the other in, for that three to four week stretch as, it, as a good test case of the industry stretching and, and really finding some uh, unique cultural touchstones that felt um, like you had to be in the theaters. Um, on the international side, I'm a bit worried about the numbers and that the, the, the film, the theater going um, hasn't quite recovered uh, from COVID completely. Um, and I'm sort of of the belief that there needs to be um, sort of more hybrid movie experiences in international markets. So, for example, in one of the challenges that we have right now is we're looking at Mexico and we're saying Mexico has been a huge horror market. Um, uh, but the uh, U.S. horror movies pretty significantly outperform the local movies, but we know local taste is important. So uh, one challenge that I think would be solved, could be solved, just as a small example, is, uh, and it's not a cost issue, right? Because uh, horror movies in the grand scheme of things are relatively affordable to produce. So how would you make a local horror movie in Mexico that feels specific, uh, that also takes in some of the learnings for, from the great horror studios that are coming from the US? Because we know that the audience is uniquely interested in that, um, but but the, the market hasn't caught up with what the audience wants. Um, so I think if you can find opportunities like that, there's gonna be uh, big opportunities to grow international theater going uh, again. Um, uh, but long-term, I think people wanna be in the theaters and, and then it's up to the producers to make things undeniable to get them there. Here's Nico Franks to introduce the next interview. Hit YA series My Life with the Walter Boys premiered in December on Netflix and was quickly recommissioned for a second season after the show remained in Netflix's global top 10 English language TV list for four consecutive weeks and reached the top 10 TV list in over 80 countries. 
based on books written by Ali Novak when she was a teenager over a decade ago and self-published on digital storytelling platform Wattpad, the US teen drama was produced by iGeneration Studios and Sony Pictures Television International Productions. It tells the coming-of-age story of a 15-year-old who, after losing her family in a tragic accident, leaves behind her privileged life in New York and moves to rural Colorado to be with her mother's best friend, who is raising 10 kids alongside her husband. I spoke with showrunner Melanie Halsall, who saw the potential of the books while working as head of development for UK and Australia-based Comics Entertainment, which was acquired by iGeneration Studios in 2021. Wattpad remains a hotbed of potential hit IP, according to Melanie, who believes there are plenty more undiscovered novels on Wattpad that could be adapted for the screen. So tell me a bit about the process of my life with the Walter Boys coming to Netflix. So I was working at Comics Entertainment at the time. I was their head of development and we had this book from Wattpad. Um, I read it and I thought I could really see the potential in it being a long-running ensemble series. The book is quite expansive. It's a big family. I don't know how much you know about the show, but it's a big family. And obviously then you've got a whole friendship group and a whole town to explore. And so I could really see the potential in it becoming a long-running series. And uh, we optioned the book. I wrote the pilot and we were working um, with Sony International at the time um, on a few development projects. And so... I spoke to them about it. They really liked it. They asked me to write an episode two, which I did. And then I wrote the series treatment. Everyone was really happy with it. We decided to pitch it. Um, Our first pitch was Netflix. And um, I pitched it to Netflix on Zoom. Uh, This is in February 21. Pitch went really, really well. And then about 10 minutes after the pitch ended, I got a phone call from Sony saying they've decided to take it. That's really interesting that it originated out of Wattpad. So that was a similar path that the kissing booth had as well. So to what extent is kind of Wattpad a, a hotbed of of potential IP? I mean, I think there have been quite a lot of Wattpad projects of varying successes. It's a great platform that a lot of people post their, obviously their own, their own IP on, their own stories on, and it has a lot of interaction with the audiences. It's massive. So I suppose the the big trick with Wattpad is finding the really good stuff. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of good stuff on, out there that still hasn't been discovered because it's, you know, it's it's obviously kind of completely sort of unregulated. And the biggest shows, the biggest stories on there often do get published as actual novels. My Wife of the Walter Boys was one. I believe The Kissing Booth was another. I didn't work on The Kissing Booth, so um, I, I don't know the story behind that entirely. The audience for Wattpad novels is broad and international. And how similar is the process of getting the screen rights to a Wattpad story? How comparable is it to a novel that's published in a more traditional way? In the case of Walter Boys, pretty much exactly the same because it had been published in a traditional way as well. And so that's, I mean, it's it's a question really for the guys that comics now iGen um, because they obviously optioned it. They, they did all the business affairs around that. But um, yes, it had been a published novel as well by the time we came to it. So very similar, very similar, you know, agents, publishers, discussions with that, that kind of thing. So in that in that particular instance, not very different at all. And the author, Ali Novak, they were a teenager when they wrote it. So how much uh, involvement did you have with them bringing the the project to screen? Yeah, so Ali is great. She's fantastic. We do talk we're obviously in touch she wasn't directly involved in any any of the creative on the show Uh, she was very um I mean she's you know she's no longer a teenager but she's and I think she's in her I think she's 32 now but she very much trusted me to get on with it and I kept her abreast of everything would keep her updated if there was some big changes like for example we we um I said we killed them off we got rid of a couple of boys in the family because um there were 12 boys in the book 12, 12 children in the book and we made it 10. So I talked to her about that and why we're doing it and that kind of thing. And she's always been nothing but supportive. We also changed a couple of big scenes and then the book, the series really does depart from the book very deliberately and um, and, and quite a lot, sort of from, you know, from quite early on. I talked to her why that was, what, I, you know, what change we'd need to make because it's 10 years old and it's a book to screen adaptation. And she was always fascinated by the process 
really supportive, really excited about the whole thing. Um, we have a very good working relationship. And um, yeah, she seems really, really happy with the end result. So it worked really well. And why was Netflix the first buyer that you approached with the project? It felt very international. And, you know, Netflix have a history of doing great YA shows. They'd obviously done the kissing booth. There was there was there was a their history there. They'd done they'd they kind of understood the the sort of Wattpad to screen model, I think. And they were no, you know, comics knew the new new people at Netflix. So that was kind of a, a nice, a nice kind of continuation. So it was it was that those reasons really that we approached them first. How is the the young adult genre evolving? in terms of obviously streaming has really, you know, changed the game when it comes to that genre and really filled a gap in the market that traditional broadcasters weren't filling. Does the young adult audience stay static? Because obviously it's a it's an audience that that doesn't, you know, it ages mm-hmm. relatively quickly. Absolutely. Um and and but I think the audience that kind of finds a show they really like, they do tend to stick with it, even, you know, through the years. I know the stuff that I really liked when I was younger. I I still like, um, you know, that the, this show is a bit of an homage to those 90s uh, YA shows, you know, Party of Five, Dawson's Creek, My Soul Called Life. Um, and I'd watch those now. <laughs> so um, I, don't, I think we're always we're all teenagers at heart forever, I think. Or, or maybe that's just me. The streamers have been able to really kind of embrace that that age group, that that genre, because they because they're on you know digital platforms and that makes them more accessible and they're not they're not bound by kind of more traditional schedules i suppose there's a lot of people watching my life with walter boys um and talking about it on tiktok and all those other social platforms and i think that's quite that's very important to that audience obviously um but in terms of how they evolve i think the thing not to think about by way ya audiences is that they're any different than any other audiences you know we never treated this show um as a ya show um to us and and to, and you know and to everyone that worked on the show, um, it was a primetime show with teenagers in it. And I think that audience responds to characters and stories that they recognise and that resonate with them and that they find attractive, entertaining, that they want to be with, they want to asp- aspire to, just like any other audience. Um, and yes, of course, they're always changing because, because they're growing up and evolving. But I think those things are universal in terms of making drama. And we're seeing Netflix be a bit more forthcoming with sharing audience figures, the popularity of its shows with the public. To what extent are you have you been given any insights into the kind of audiences maybe beyond YA who are watching it and and where they are? As so far, I haven't been given any any of that kind of information that might be coming. I know they do they do some consumer insights insight stuff and and share that with us, but we haven't had those conversations at the moment. So, um, but I do know anecdotally from um you know people on social media that aren't in that YA group that it has seemed to have reached a nice broad intergenerational audience and obviously it's female skewed obviously it's um of course it appeals to a younger audience because because of because of the subject matter and because of the, the the characters and actors but from what I'm seeing of the audience's reaction through social media it is the sort of thing that a family can watch together a mum and a daughter can watch together and without it feeling like a family show if that makes sense um and both get something out of and I'm really pleased about that because that was one of the things I really wanted to do and what tips would you have for others you know potential showrunners writers who are hoping to get their YA scripts off the ground well I, I guess I think it's the same it's kind of the same answer as before really Nico I think it is I think it's that know your audience and understand what what they like and what they're interested in and and treat them with you know that they have intelligence and treat them with respect and create characters and stories that they recognize and that resonate with them and and that they can enjoy i i, I really do think writing for a ya audience is exactly the same as writing for any other audience and i think sometimes maybe that's where we get it wrong a little bit maybe if we we're, we're trying too hard to write something that we think will appeal rather than actually thinking what do people like people like good characters and good stories you know essentially do you still search Wattpad for potential stories I imagine my life with the Walter boys is, is taking up a lot of your time but do you see Wattpad's still as a source of, of potential IP I have not been trawling Wattpad for potential IP in the in re- recently in all in all honesty I have been pati- very consumed with the show and continue to be con- completely consumed with the show at the moment but I think it and so I haven't I haven't kind of gone through it at all but I imagine it is still very much a, a place where 
people of all stripes and all ages um, are posting are posting stories, and we we know how successful some other you know in other genres self published novels have have been in the translation to real publishing and then TV and film. So you know it's it's a great like anything is a great source for for stories and inspiration. I think yeah. And to what extent is generative AI on your radar as a as a showrunner and, and writer? Do you are you averse to using it in any way? Do you know of colleagues kind of who who are using it or who are particularly against it? What's your kind of take on it all? Um, I'm really the wrong person to ask this question. I think I have absolutely no no experience in AI at all, um, and no won't be using it, um, and d- don't really have know anyone else who does use it. I'm sure there are people, but it is. I have to be absolutely honest, Nico. It's so far away from my radar as to be as it is a completely different world. Um, it just isn't something that um, at the moment is on my on my radar, in all honesty. And do you think it would be a shame if TV companies were to kind of begin using it as as a standard to kind of even just kind of uh, experiment or um, use as a kind of starting launching pad for for ideas? I mean, yeah, of course, of course. I think that if we if we could become a world where even our entertainment, you know, our, our stories, our our human interests is is generated by a computer then i i think we really have lost something haven't we you know i think all really good entertainment tv shows dramas novels books plays come from someone's heart and you can't you know i think ai can do some amazing things from what i've seen although i know i do know very very little about it but i can't imagine they can capture that that sort of human truth um that that you really do need in a story to make it resonate i think Double O Seven Road to a Million debuted on Amazon Prime Video in November, the first official extension of the James Bond franchise into the world of television. Produced by Fremantle-owned UK-based 72 Films, the competition reality show sees Succession star Brian Cox helm the action while contestants take on a series of daring challenges around the world in the hope of winning a million pounds. The show came in the wake of Amazon's 2022 acquisition of Bond owner MGM, but still wasn't an automatic shoe-in, with the movie's long-time producer Barbara Broccoli and Eon Productions having turned down plenty of previous ideas. 72 Films creative director John Douglas spoke to Neil Beatty about how the show was developed and secured support, and why the industry is witnessing an uptick in scripted IP being adapted for the unscripted market. Can you tell me about your childhood Bond experiences? Which era of Bond were you born into? Which films did you enjoy most? Um, so Bond just sort of has so much sort of nostalgia for me. I think um, my era was definitely sort of Roger Moore. Uh, and looking back on those sort of now, I think what I loved about them was just, you know, I love the locations. I love I loved sort of Roger Moore's sort of, you know, his, the, the slight... The raised eyebrows, the you know, it was a break from the Connery uh, Bond, I think, which was sort of tough and muscular, and you know, I think I just loved the sort of the the softness and the, and some of the you know things done with a bit of a wink and a glint in the eye, um, which I think I really responded to as a kid with Roger Moore. And watching these films as a kid, maybe on Christmas Day, like a lot of Brits would have done, did you ever dream that you would become involved in, the, you know, the very first Bond TV series? Yeah, I think watching those films, you know, watching Bond films growing up, um, I think that conversations here just, you know, never would have, uh, would, would I dreamed that I'd have been involved with the Bond franchise trying to replicate or take inspiration from those sort of movies that I loved as a kid um, and putting them into a, a sort of formatted show that's the first ever sort of Bond uh, TV show. It's like a, yeah, it's a sort of dream come true, really. And uh, looking back on the experience now, what, what kind of memories will you, will you cherish from it? What, what, did, did you actually manage to go to on, on location to some of the, the exotic places where it was shot? Yeah, well, we started, as we started filming, we pretty much started editing at the same time. So we had sort of the dual things going on, of the, the edit and the location. So 
Um, I did go to Scotland and I went to Istanbul and I went to Switzerland, but, uh, but I didn't get as far as um, the South America. I didn't get to Brazil or Chile, unfortunately, or Jamaica. Um, I, was, I was busy in the edit, unfortunately. But, um, but it, was, it was amazing and just having you know, that sense of filming something in these amazing locations where you know sort of Bond has been uh, and Bond films have been shot in, you know, and trying at times sort of like for like to sort of replicate Bond moments um, was incredible in those locations. And, um, and it was just a real sort of privilege to be, to be doing that and saying, taking inspiration for one of the, from one of the biggest sort of um, film franchises there's ever been. Uh, yeah, you do sort of pinch yourself a bit when you're on location and in those places. Um, and then putting real people through those, you know, through the, the challenges and the tasks and, you know, helping to create a bit of a bomb world for them to inhabit, you know, so it's just a, yeah, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. And you touched on just, just a few minutes ago about, you know, the bomb IP, the bomb brand, the bomb franchise. Um, I mean, obviously producers and commissioners talk about IP a lot. But if you were to put a list together, I mean, how high does Bob sit on that list of IP in, in film and film history? Well, I, I think if you just look now, you know, obviously in the last Bond, you know, the last Bond film, Daniel Craig was, was killed off um, as Bond. And I think it's so eagerly anticipated, like, you know, the whole film industry and film fans and people who, you know, not even people who who, or just people who are aware of Bond, you know, people want to know what's happening with that, with, with, with Bond, who the next Bond's going to be, how they're going to handle, um, you know, who the next Bond's going to be and what the story will be. And I sort of, I think from, from our point of view, it was, it's such a global phenomenon, that brand, and it's like, it does feel like right at the very, at the very top of, of sort of film franchises. I think, you know, from an IP point of view, you know, we, we were lucky enough, it, it, Bond brings an audience, you know, I think we were number one in 27 countries around the world, you know, we were top of sort of uh, Amazon's, um, uh, you know, list for, for weeks, I think. I think having that IP, having Bond being such a strong presence in this series and being backed by Bond, um, just brought an audience, a Bond audience immediately with people who know they're going to get amazing locations, they're going to get adventure, um, they're going to get some warmth, they're going to get heart. Um, and I think that was something that hopefully we could encapsulate, but that we just all the time take inspiration from the, from the Bond films. But I think from, a, from an IP point of view, I'm not sure you can get a, a more recognisable, immediately um, you know, exciting brand for which to bring a to bring an audience. If, just hypothetically, you'd been trying to pitch this exact same concept without the Bond element, do you think it would have even been possible to get a financing together, to, to get it even greenlit? Do you think, do you think a, a, an identical show without the Bond element would have got, would have got greenlit? I think in the way the series came about, um, you know, we did make a pilot, we did sort of come up with the concept and Bond, you know, the franchise wasn't attached. You know, there was a version of the show when we first sort of pitched it or start, first started talking about it uh, to Amazon that didn't have Bond attached. Um, I think it's, it's a great idea, you know, putting people into really, really difficult situations and seeing what they're made of to test their bravery and their acumen and their... Um, general knowledge for, for money and for a prize is like a really good idea. Um, but as soon as, um, you know, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson and Greg Wilson, as soon as they sort of became involved and liked the idea, I think what you realise, that just supersized the, the whole thing. And would we have been commissioned without the Bond franchise? Um, I don't know, but I think certainly when the two things kind of came together. And I think, weirdly, as we were making the pilot, it was a reference in the back of our minds, which was just like, imagine putting people in this world. It is a bit like a Bond film. Um, so I think, you know, pitching it to, to Eon, um, and when we first sort of spoke to them about it, it did feel like a sort of quite a natural fit. And luckily, you know, Barbara, um, uh, Michael and Craig felt the same. So, um, yeah, I think, I think obviously having the franchise, I think what that did to us, or did for us though, was really focus us 
on how amazing we had to make this. Not, you know, visually, um, you know, from an editorial, from a content point of view, from a safety point of view, making sure nobody was hurt, you know, because we, we've done some quite daring things and we're asking people to do quite risky stuff. Um, but all those things, you know, comes with such a weight of responsibility when you're connected to, to the Bond franchise. So everything had to be right. So it does sort of, you know, weigh quite heavily, but it also gives you these amazing opportunities um, to make something that hopefully doesn't feel like any other show out there. Sure. And obviously this is a kind of scripted IP to unscripted space adaptation. Um, obviously people have kind of regarded those two spaces as, as very different to each other, but what are the unifying factors that, that the kind of exist in scripted and unscripted? I mean, would you say maybe um, Jeopardy might be one, one such element? And you, can, you, can you talk about that or any more that you think kind of combine the two? I think, I think the things that connect sort of scripted and unscripted, um, you know, from an IP point of view, is trying to encapsulate the, the drama that's inherent or that, that, you know, it's when you're scripting stuff, you fill it, don't you, with, with drama, narrative, story, an arc. Um, and, and, for there to be, and for there to be some jeopardy and for characters to really, you know, have dilemmas, whether they're sort of psychological or physical or, you know, things they have to overcome. So I think, you know, in the, in the best films that you see, particularly in the best Bond films, you know, Bond has to overcome a lot of things to reach an end point. Um, and I think the, the things, that, there are massive crossovers uh, between the scripted and the unscripted space. You know, we're always looking for ways to, to, to get drama into, into unscripted and into sort of documentary. Um, you do, you know, Jeopardy for me in documentary is a bit of a sort of, a bit of a nasty word because I think sometimes you're trying to, or you know, there's lots of programmers, I think you're trying to build false jeopardy and I think audiences feel that. And I think when that's done really well in scripted, you don't notice it, you just feel the excitement and the adrenaline and the exhilaration of, of people's predicaments. Um, so doing that in the unscripted space, but making sure it feels real, um, I think is, is the most important thing. And hopefully having real people doing real things means you get natural, real responses. And I think in our casting, you know, making sure that we, we cast the, the right people who, who would respond in very sort of real ways to the, the, the tests and the challenges we gave them, I think felt, felt the most important thing. And that's, that's where I think that the crossover really is. You know, obviously in scripted, when it's done brilliantly, it's done with brilliant script writing, done brilliant actors, looks amazing, um, budgets are big. Um, whereas in, in unscripted, you know, we've got to rely on a sort of different set of things, but hopefully get the same outcome. Mm. It's interesting how you, how you went about making the show, because I guess like, if someone was to mention like a, a Bond adventure reality show, they'd think, oh, it's going to be a bunch of Bond wannabes trying to defuse an imaginary bomb or something like that. Well, you went completely the other way with casting. Was, was that a very deliberate thing? I think in casting the show, there was a risk that um, it feels like a lot of wannabe James Bonds. And I think we didn't want that. I think, you know, Eon didn't want that. Amazon didn't want that. You know, I feel like I feel that would be a very, a very sort of straight way of trying to adapt a TV show uh, in connection with, with Bond. Um, and I just, uh, you know, I think we wanted, we wanted to cast sort of real people and put them into these sort of Bond-like dramatic scenarios um, to really test, to test real people um, and to see what they were made of and if they could cope in those sort of really difficult situations. And then after a difficult task or challenge, have to answer a question for money. But with a, you know, the, the road to a million was a real road to a million. You know, if they, if they, got, to the, if they got to the end and answered the, the million pound question, they'd walk away with, with all that money. So, so I, think, I, I think we didn't want people running around, auditioning, trying to be the next, uh, the next James Bond. I think the other thing was that the idea of the show, and I think this is what audiences kind of reacted to as well, um, is that you know, the show gets more bondy as you go through the levels and as you answer questions for more money. Um, that felt like a really important thing to do. It's a bit like you know, Daniel Craig when he became Bond. You, know, you earn your tropes, you earn your bondness. 
um, you know, you don't get the martini and the tuxedo and the sort of Bond theme tune playing straight away. You know, you've got to go through some some difficult things first. So for us, we wanted to sort of replicate that kind of feeling that the, the, that the real people in the show, you know, don't just get to drive an Aston Martin and, and run around trying to be Bond. You know, anything they do get that's more associated to the, to the Bond films has to be really earned. Sure. I think David Bowie is on record as saying that he didn't believe that, that, that um, Dan Grabman would be able to get Broccoli in Neon to agree to the Bond uh, endorsement. Um, did you feel like it was a long shot as well? What, what, were, your, what were your thoughts when that, that when you, you pitched the, the, the concept to Dan Grabbenet and then did you think it was likely that was going to come off? Um, I think I think for all of us it was kind of, you know, we knew we had a good pilot, we knew we had a strong, um, you know, a strong idea, uh, but Dan and Amazon, you know, felt very strongly that, that you know, it needed something else, it needed supersizing. And, um, and I think David, you know, uh, you know we sent the, the, the deck, we sent the idea off to, to Barbara, I think in the knowledge that, you know, we were told she gets ideas for TV programmes all the time um, and turns them all down. So I think for us, you know, it, it probably did feel like a bit of a long shot, but um, once we sort of heard back that, that Barbara liked the idea, she liked having, you know, she liked the fact that it wasn't wannabe spies. She liked the fact that, you know, we were putting people through difficult things, but that it was going to be safe, but exciting, and these real people were being tested. Um, I think that was a sort of moment where we thought, okay, well, this, this is what the show, this is what the show is about. It is kind of putting people into a bomb world. Um, and really testing them. And I think, um, at first, yeah, I think it probably did feel like a long shot to us all, but, um, but I think we also really backed the idea and thankfully, you know, Barbara um, sort of responded to that. I think one of the biggest responsibilities as well was, was working out with the audience, um, with our sort of potential audience. We're gonna have an audience of Bond fans who are coming to the show because it's so associated with with Bond, you know, it's 007's Road to a Million, and the real sort of Bond fanatics, you know, making sure there's something in it for them, but also for people who sort of, you know, like watching Bond films and are aware of the franchise, but, you know, aren't quite so knowledgeable, you know, making sure it wasn't too niche for them. So, so we tried to sort of, you know, find a way through that um, to, to hopefully give a, a series that could be sort of enjoyed by real sort of Bond fanatics, but also by people who have got a slightly more nodding interest in the Bond films. And so I think, you know, the, the responses that we got um, and the feedback that we've got, I think, you know, what you really realise is just how international the sort of Bond franchise is. And, you know, our, our audience sort of globally, I think, has really responded to the, to the, to the show in a way that we weren't, uh, we weren't sort of quite expecting. I think you just, you just realise just what a massive international brand uh, Bond is. It's quite a coincidence that, you know, we've not seen too many of these scripted to unscripted TV projects and then we've got two huge ones, rival streamers, debuting almost, you know, exactly the same time. Were you aware of the fact that Netflix were working on Squid Game? Did that kind of up the ante? I mean, you're all British production companies, so you must know each other and have a bit of banter. How did that pan out? Yeah, I think I think we we were aware. I mean, I, I you know I've worked at the Garden. Uh, you know, David Glover seventy two is um, you know no Stephen Lambert very well. You know, it's a smallish you know industry, isn't it? Um, especially especially the sort of factual uh, you know factual part of the industry. So you know we do sort of know each other. I was aware of people who were working on Squid Games equally. You know, I've got sort of friends. Um, who knew I was sort of working on Road to Millions. So, you know, I think there are times where you're sort of trying to find out what's happening on the production, how's it going, um, you know, when it might launch, all those kinds of things. And I think, uh, I think David and Stephen sort of teased each other a bit about kind of, you know, um, how, the, how the sort of productions were, were getting on. But I think, I think it is a, you know, it's an interesting time, isn't it, where, you know, the, 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 the big sort of film franchise IP, not just films, but other sort of, you know, other sort of, um, other sort of IP is being adapted and used because, in unscripted, because it just automatically brings name recognition, it brings an audience, it brings that sort of, you know, something like, something like Road to a Million, you know, we're just, 
we're just able to use all of this um, all of this material and all these amazing films that have been been made by the Bond franchise over the years and, and adapt them and use them as best we can in, in unscripted and I suppose with Squid Game you know they're taking what is a, a game that exists in entirety in a sort of scripted space and adapting that for sort of unscripted so I think I think there's, you know, it's great that these ideas are, are out there and then the challenge is kind of how do you, um, how do you adapt them um, and stay relatively faithful to the, to the IP while bringing it to a, a non-scripted audience. John Douglas speaking with Neil Beatty. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. 